Hey, I'm Clayton. And I'm Sean. And we're men who like men who like movies. We're two queer men who love movies and we love talking about movies. And after long time of everyone telling us we should probably start a podcast, we started a podcast. This week, we have a very special episode lined up for you all. We are here talking with the managing editor of Daily Dead and author of the Monsters Makeup and Effects series, Heather Wixon. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. We're so glad to have you. (laughs) I'm I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much for, for inviting me. Yeah, we are so glad to have you here today to talk about your new book. Tell us a little bit about it. Oh, goodness. Um, that's like probably like an hour story all in itself. <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll try to do the abridged version. Um, so yeah, so basically, um, I, I think for me, like working in the realm of like horror entertainment journalism over the years, um, I've always been somebody who's like really loves to kind of tell other people's stories. And mm. years ago, I used to do um, this sort of celebration for something I called Stan Winston Week, where I would celebrate a handful of movies that uh, basically became so magical because of the work of Stan Winston and everybody working at Stan Winston Studios. Mm-hmm. And when I was doing love one of the that. interviews, yeah, thank you. And so I when I was really doing... love that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. I, yeah, I'm a huge okay. Stan Winston fan, like uh, one of my personal heroes. Sorry. That's why I did it, honestly. Um, I, I'm in the same boat. And so it was interesting because like this, like the second or third time I did it, um, I started to kind of ask people more about Stan because I wanted to do a tribute to who Stan was. Not necessarily like what he had achieved in the industry, but, you know, because we'd lost him in 2009 and just like he, he'd been gone for a while and I just wanted people to sort of have that reference of like who he was as a human being. And it was interesting because like I was doing these interviews and a lot and I, a couple of the people were at, like said to me, they were like, you know, nobody's really ever asked me about this stuff. And I was like, what? And it turns out like for so long, um, whenever like special effects people were getting interviewed, it was generally about like, well, how did you make this? And how did you do this? And you know, and inspirations behind designs and things like that. But nobody ever really stopped to talk to them about their lives or their experiences. And for me, like that's, (coughs) pardon me, that's a part of like film history. You know, that's Mm -hmm. like the stuff that I love myself as a fan. And so initially I set out and I was like, okay, if I can get 20 people to talk to me, I'm going to do this book. And that was, I started all of this back in 2016 of, of all times. And so Um, I went to some of the special effects folks that I'd sort of been in regular contact with over the years and was able to put together 20 people. And so I originally uh, released this first book called Monster Squad back in 2017. And, but but I was still collecting interviews because I was still getting responses from people. And honestly, for me, it was just kind of like, like constantly having Christmas where it was like, oh, you know, so-and-so wants to talk to me like, this is amazing. Let's do this. And, but I didn't really know what to do. And I didn't necessarily really love my first publisher. It was just a lot of miscommunications. Actually, the book was released and they didn't even tell me. I just, yeah, I went on to Amazon. (laughs) I was like, oh, I should see if it's on here because I should probably start promoting it soon. And I looked and it was already on Amazon. They hadn't even sent me copies yet. They hadn't even communicated to me that it was out. And I was like, I was like, what? And that was like the first red flag for me. Um, And I was just like, okay, no, this is, I can't 
keep working with them. And it's, it's a publisher that a lot of people work with and probably a lot of first time authors work with. And it's mm-hmm. fine to a degree, but it was just, it wasn't, it wasn't feeling right to me. And so right. for a while, actually, I was supposed to sort of do this big two volume set um, uh, with actually with Fangoria back in the day, uh, back when they were still publishing books and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But then they sort of had everything that kind of happened throughout the pandemic in terms of like changing ownership and things like that. And they didn't, they weren't really focused on books anymore. So in the meantime, I'd collected like 70 some odd interviews and I was like, I don't know what to do with this now. <laughs> so thankfully, I actually got in touch with my current publisher, who is Michael over at AM Inc. And he's worked with a bunch of different effects people. He just did the reprint for Kane Hodder's autobiography, which is amazing. If you've never Ooh. had a chance to read it. Kane no, that's on awesome. my list. <laughs> yeah, he's got some really amazing stories. Um, and I, we just hit it off and he was like, let's do a four volume series. Um, and I was like, cool. And so like the first one came out last year and then this one almost, we're, we're like 52 weeks and five days removed. So it'll, it'll it's almost to the day ish. Wow. Uh, one volume two. And then I, the goal is that three will come out next October and then for the October after my only concern is, and this has happened so far a few times where I've interviewed people. And sadly, they've passed away in the meantime. Um, and so I'm almost like, should I just push three and four up? Because I want people, for me, like, I love writing and I love being able to do what I do. But none of this process has ever been about me. Right. It's about celebrating these artists and getting their moment. And it makes me sad when something comes out after we've lost somebody and they don't get a chance to know that, like, fans are enjoying, like, hearing about their lives yeah, um, and it, that happened that happened with the first book with matt rose mm-hmm. and who he was one of stan winston's guys he worked a lot with steve wang um mm-hmm. and he was a really really talented artist but i think we lost him i want to say in 2019 um i think it was it was during sundance i remember because i got the call about it when i was there mm-hmm. um so for me he was in volume one and it just kind of broke my heart a little bit um, because Matt was a guy who he was really talented, but I don't think he ever fully knew just how talented he was. Like even during the interview, he was like, you know, why are you talking to me? And I was like, why wouldn't I be talking to you? And he like right. spouted off all these different names of other people. And I was just like, no, we're, we're talking about you, Matt. Like I've talked to these other people. We're cool. Like this is about you. And so for me, that was a huge bummer. Like I was excited to be able to put his story out in the world. But at the same time, I was really sad because I just wanted him to know that fans appreciated him and that they were getting to en- like enjoy reading about him and his life and his experiences and the things that he did, you know, because he was one of the guys behind Predator, you know, yeah. and had it not been for him and Steve Wang, like that creature wouldn't have existed the way that it did. Like sure, Stan did the initial like concept designs and stuff, but it was their work that really brought it to life for the movie. So, you know, and that was, and that's one of the reasons like for this second volume there, I kind of broke my format a little bit. Sorry, I'm jibber jabbering here. No, you're um, <laughs> I apologize. This is fascinating. Thank you. Uh, um, but I kind of broke my format a little bit because one of the people that kept, I would say probably came up in like between 80 to 90% of my interviews that I've done, uh, at least for artists here in the States, 
um, was John Carl Beekler. Um, yes. Because he was a guy who always, like his door was open for every artist to walk through, learn the ropes, establish themselves as an artist, build their portfolio, and then move on. And he, and he was just that guy. And he was so instrumental in so many careers, but also had a really amazing career of his own. And I had reached out to John early in this process and I didn't realize like how sick he was at the time. And mm -hmm. we just weren't able to connect and then we lost him. And part of me was like, it just didn't feel right to do this series without taking a moment to celebrate him. And so for his, for his chapter, it's a bunch of different special effects artists, but I also was able to talk with Kane Hodder because him and Kane were best friends and they were inseparable for years. Yeah. I was um, going to say, um, Beekler directed, uh, Friday the 13th part eight, I think, right. New blood. Uh, seven. Oh, seven. Sorry. I couldn't remember which that's one. Okay. Eight, <laughs> eight is Manhattan. And that's usually where we tune out. Yeah, I know that's it's supposed to be fun, but man, there's just so many more fun Friday the 13th to watch. But seven yeah, is pretty well, cool. Yeah, I was gonna say seven. I, I I like seven. Uh, that one it actually brought something new to the table, which was nice, and yeah. it, it kind of keeps a high energy of six, which I also enjoy. Yeah, so. and the, the the design of Jason is amazing. It's probably the oh, best I think of the bunch. Beautiful. I was I, gonna say. Kane Hodder is the, the perfect Jason and there will it will be very hard to ever top him. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Your section in the book on him was so good. So oh, if that you. was a break from format, I think it was a very loving tribute to him. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I just, you know, it's one of those like I know like people will talk about like, you know, every once in a while, like somebody will bring up Friday Seven or the, you know, troll movies or whatnot. And, you know, his name will kind of come and go in passing but I just wanted to put something out there where genuinely like for fans who maybe aren't as familiar like maybe they're going to go and discover like all the work that he did and the thing is it wasn't even like he was one of the the most technical artists out there because he like he wasn't a Rick Baker he wasn't a Stan Winston you know or I mean even to, to a degree as Tom Savini um, Tom's probably was a little less technical driven than some of his other counterparts. Mm -hmm. He was more, I think, involved, sort of focused on evoking a reaction with his work. So mm -hmm. he wasn't as caught up in the details as somebody like Rick Baker, where like you could, you know, look, if you look at the makeup in like the Planet of the Apes remake or the Grinch Who Stole Christmas, like those are like some of the most pristine makeups you'll ever see. Right. Um, and there's like hundreds of them. Um, um, but the thing is, like, Beekler was like a guy where he's like, okay, we have to figure out how to make this look like this. Let's take a fork and, like, play around in the clay and see what happens. And maybe we use a spatula. You know, he was just a guy who was, like, game for anything as long as it fit the need of the design, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think it absolutely kind does. Of fascinating about that, where he wasn't caught up in the rules as much as he was caught up in, like, just, you know, making it happen. If that Absolutely. Sense. No, it makes perfect sense. And honestly, I, I was going to say, the first time I ever saw his name, it wasn't Friday the 13th. It was From Beyond. Um, nice. Which has been a favorite of mine. Uh, I'm from uh, I'm from Chicagoland, about northwest Indiana. And we have something called Spangoolie, <laughs> which uh, is like... I am, I am a Chicago native. 
Oh, awesome. So, yeah, you've seen Spengoolie then? I grew up with Spengoolie. Oh, yeah. I love Spengoolie. But I remember From Beyond played one night, and I was probably 10. And I remember just being like, oh my God. <laughs> and that movie has stuck with me forever. <laughs> um, and it's, I, it's, uh, it was just so good. And I remember watching it and just going, Oh, this is so gross and great. <laughs> There's so and, many amazing Stuart Gordon movies you can say that about too. Oh, absolutely. Oh, There's so many. And I just remember looking up the effects team for it because I'm, I'm the person that goes and I buy the DVD and I watch every single commentary. I watch the documentaries. I watch everything I can to try and learn. Like, you know, even if it's like not it, how they did it, but just like, different aspects of all types of filmmaking and i remember seeing his name on it and i was i was like oh cool and i have this weird memory where i used to have like a really good memory as a kid and it still kind of works every once in a while but like a name will stick there and i'll be able to like pinpoint where i found it originally <laughs> so i'm like uh i remember the first time i watched friday the 13th uh part seven and i was like oh <laughs> john carl beakler that popped up <laughs> isn't it fun when you can start to make those connections as a fan mm -hmm. oh yeah. like it's it's one of those where like you start to it, i think it actually helps you start to like build your own identity as a horror fan when you start to connect with certain creators because then you know, like, what you like and what you're not clicking with and stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, I, that's, that's always a really fun moment, I think, as a fan. No, absolutely. And it's cool because reading your book, I was just like, oh, I know this name. I know that name. Like, there's one point um, that they bring up uh, Tom Woodruff and uh, Alec Gillis. And I was like, oh, Amalgamated Dynamics. And then the next sentence was like, they formed an Amalgamated Dynamics. And I was just <laughs> like, I was like, oh, okay. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> you were ahead of the curve on that one. Yeah, just a little bit. Just a little bit. <laughs> don't call me for all of it. I'm still learning my way. But <laughs> reading yeah, this um, book was like the special features documentary I've always wanted and never gotten. Because usually, you know, if they do talk to special effect guys, it's a five minute EPK of just shots of a creature or something. Never yeah. anything really in depth and not a sit down with them about their lives or they never get a proper interview or a story done on them by a major publication or anything the way that directors or actors would do. Yeah, they're I very underlooked and like they're the reason movies work. Exactly. Um, and it's interesting to me because I think it was like for a while I actually toyed around with the idea of doing a documentary, but then there was like there was one that came out, I want to say in like 2020. And at first I was like super bummed out because I was like, oh, I didn't get a chance to watch it because I didn't. It was like it kind of came and went and everything was so strange during the pandemic with like certain releases where it was like. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if it properly came out here in the States. I think it might've been mostly Canada. And so I never got around to like checking it out, but I, I know there was one in 2020, but there was a part of me that thought about like exploring this as a documentary, because there are so many stories that probably they didn't share because, you know, sometimes if you're talking, like if you're doing an interview, like sometimes you might hold back a little bit or you might forget certain stories or things like that. And like, and now in retrospect, you're like, Oh, I should have mentioned this or, you know, so I thought about it, but I was like, well, mm -hmm. I'm like, 
I'm going to be throwing 2000 pages at people by the end of this thing, maybe a little bit more. <laughs> so let's hope that works for now. And if maybe it happens, it happens, but you know, if it doesn't, it's okay. There's a lot of other things it's, out there. It's so funny how you mentioned them holding back because it, when I was reading these interviews, I thought they were all really, really candid. <laughs> there is some stuff that I will tell you. I, I could say without a, without a doubt that like I had to omit um, oh. because I just, I didn't want to start any trouble for anybody. Right. Um, and in fact, there was somebody who it was in the first book and they had shared a story where they had this like sort of big confrontation with another person and the way that they framed it seemed okay. So I kind of kept it in because I actually thought it made sort of the production elements of this movie more interesting. And I guess they'd forgotten that they'd shared that with me. So when, cause I let everybody review their chapter before I publish mm -hmm. um, just because I'm, I don't want to do anything incorrectly. I want to make, you know, sometimes if transcriptions, a little bit off or something like that. I want to make sure everybody's like 100% comfortable. Right. And, um, and they got back to me and they're like, yeah, maybe we need to omit this. And I was like, okay, no worries. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to cause any grief. And I will tell you, there's also an artist who I guess has had like a decades old beef with another artist who was like, I don't want to be in the same book as so-and-so. And I was like, Really? We're going to do this? I was like, you guys are grown-ups. <laughs> okay, so Ryan Murphy has a new a new season of Feud, and I am excited for that. Yeah, <laughs> feud, uh, that, be, that should be Feud effects. I love I it. I love it. I would, I would watch that. Hell out I of would, that. Are you kidding I would me? tune in every week, and I am horrible at that. <laughs> you are so horrible at that. That would be amazing. Um, but, do you... Do you have a favorite story from your interviews? Oh. Or like any. Lot. I think for I'm me, one say. of my favorite things, and I think this is, it's, it's, I feel like it's a story that like, whether or not you want to become a special effects artist, it's something that I feel like you can be inspired by because it's like, it just shows you like, if you really are determined to achieve something, like you, you'll find a way. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, it's a story in the first book um, with Tony Gardner, who is amazing. His daughter, Kira, just, um, she has a film on the festival circuit right now called Living with Chucky, because her dad has been doing the effects for Chucky since uh, Seed. So, so good right now. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, so, yeah. So, it's, I, I've gotten to know Tony very well over the, the last, gosh, I think actually since Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse, because... Wow. I first met him at his shop because they had us come out and turned us into zombies to then interview him. And oh, I'd never done so that. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. And I was like, I was like, I am not, I was like, cause I don't put stuff into my eyes. Like I just wear glasses. I can't do contacts. Mm -hmm. And they're like, we're going to do your contacts now. And I was like, no, you're not. And they're like, just trust us, Heather. Like, it's going to be so quick. You're going to be fine. And I was like, no, I don't, I don't want to do this. And they, they, they had the optometrist there and they're like, just look up. You're going to be fine. I'm just going to slide it right in. You're, you're not even going to be a teller in there. Um, and like for the first two or three minutes, I was okay. But then they were really itchy just because I have very sensitive eyes. Right. But I've gotten to really know him over the years. And honestly, when we did his interview, I think we spent a total of like four and a half hours on the phone. Oh, that's so cool. And all these different conversations. <laughs> and my favorite thing that he t was, t was telling me is like he was so determined 
to to make to be in the, the special effects world, he actually, um, and this was like early '80s, so he like rode his bicycle over to Universal and had a red hoodie on, and he attached like this basket to the front of his bike, and he had actually made an ET and put it in the bike, wrapped <laughs> it in a blanket. And he just rode onto the Universal <laughs> lot, pretending to be one of the employees in costume. Oh and he my went right, gosh. And he went right past security. They didn't even stop him. And so he basically <laughs> broke into, like, broke into sounds way more illegal. But yeah, he kind of did. But he was because he wanted to meet Spielberg. And he wanted to talk to his hero and try to, like, establish a relationship. And... I, I don't know if he ever actually met Spielberg, but I know he finally got to his office and he was sitting in there waiting and he noticed this young kid sitting there playing like pinball or something to that effect. And it was actually Zach Galligan was hanging out in between uh, scenes for Gremlins. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that is such so. an L.A. story. It such is. Such an L.A. story. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't recommend breaking into, like, public property, per se, but he I, was so determined. He was just giving his interview a little pop. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I, was call, I call it side, side, you know, sidestepping it. It's, a it's, hard, bit, it's hard to stand out. <laughs> Look, I mean, if security's not going to do their job, I mean, that's not his fault. <laughs> I think that's the way I look at it. Yeah, I was going to say, I wonder what he's seen every day that he was just like, E.T., okay. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, I think that was like when ET was like the rage, like in the early '80s, because I think they really had people like going around the park dressed as Elliot with like ET, like dolls and stuff. So he just was like, "All right, I'm just going to do this and see if it works," and he went right onto the lot. So, oh, and I think he actually is... tried to go back, and they caught him. But like, but he was just—he was like, "I want to do this, and I'm—I'm going to do what it takes to go and try to meet my hero." All and, of these kids, yeah, or artists when they were children, yeah, a large portion of them just worked so hard, and their parents were so supportive and stuff. And just it was like they knew at an early age they were so creative and they just went for it. I don't know yeah. how many of the stories in there, and it was just like, and we just knew we had to be in LA and just took off and made it happen. Yeah, it's always <laughs> interesting to me too, like when I'm talking to people to figure out like who did. The transition to LA and who did the transition to New York because those mm -hmm. like back in the day those were like the two big hubs and it was kind of it was kind of competitive between the two because um I know that like for example like John Caglione Jr. and Doug Drexler they were primarily for years East Coast guys because they came up under Dick Smith yeah. and they were personally invited to come out to do a meeting for Dick Tracy out here in LA. And that was already after Warren Beatty had met with Stan. He had met with Rick Baker. I think he might've even met with Rob Bottin at that point um, and a couple other effects houses. And he just hadn't found the team yet. And he actually mm -hmm. invited them out from New York and basically because they ended up getting Dick Tracy. And because of that, that's what made, made them both sort of transition to working in Los Angeles because they'd always been East Coast guys up until that point. So it's always interesting. But, and they got a little bit of grief, I think, too, from, from a lot of their peers at the time. And I think, honestly, like, I think for a lot of them, like, it's always competitive because, you know, it's work. You got to make money and you got to survive and thrive in this industry. And you're, not, you're only as good as the last thing you've done. But I think there's also, 
especially now in retrospect for a lot of them, there's like sort of this like genuine appreciation and affection in that competitiveness where like, sure, there's like, oh, I'm bummed that they got this and I didn't, but also like, oh, that's going to turn out really cool, you know, at the same time. Right. So there's very few where like genuinely people hated each other. Like I think there was always like this sort of healthy appreciation of like, we all need to work. We all need to make money. Um, but we're all sort of in this together. Right. And that was something I really got out of your book was just the camaraderie. Like a lot of the times they'd work together on different movies and everyone worked on Gremlins too. And <laughs> I mean, yeah, because that, that movie was, like, 18 months long. Like, yeah, they need, like, half of, how, like, I'd say, like, two-thirds of the effects industry, I think, at the time worked on that movie. Yeah, and I was just, like, and they would all, and it was cool because they would, they would say, uh, like, oh, that would work. We did this thing, but, and it worked really well for us. And then they would take it, and they would be all, like, they would bring it back to their effects house and just be, like, oh, this is what worked over there. And it, it just felt like, there's such amazing camaraderie. Like, yeah, it's a, I mean, you're you're always trying to, you know, you're trying to come up with the best effects, but it's it's a brotherhood as opposed to just being like, you know, we're fighting to the death for everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, and that's the thing too. I think especially too, because early in the industry, um, like, because I think it was right before like the shops were really getting, established because it really wasn't how that worked until the 80s like most mm -hmm. of the time you were working for like a studio specifically and you were under contract and then you would just go work on the projects that the studios had going on and then it was guys like stan and rick that sort of broke out and were like no we're just going to start our own business and bring artists in to our fold and then you could hire our shop to do these things but i remember like even talking to like v neil where she would say like Friday nights, like they would just be hanging out in Rick Baker's garage and whoever showed up, showed up and they would just party and talk and drink until like 3am. And you know, they would just, you know, say, all right, see you guys later. And then they just come back the next Friday or they'd be at somebody else's garage the next Friday. Um, and I just think that's really cool. Like, you know, I'm just like that idea of like just hanging out, like, and they're, they're like sharing war stories and, you know, with each other and everything. So yeah, I just think that's kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, Clayton. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, the way they would just casually toss things off, I mean, you could have had it edited down and out, but there were so many times I'm just like, oh, there's probably a really good story there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are times where I'm like, I know people are holding back, like, or especially for people who are still actively working, I would say. Mm -hmm. Right. That I'm sure there was a little bit of diplomacy in some of their answers um, because I know back then, like the studios were a nightmare to work with, you know, because a lot of the directors back then, they just didn't have an appreciation for the special effects process. Um, and I mean, I'm not saying this to be terrible because he's one of my favorite directors, but like, I mean, and John Carpenter has said this repeatedly in interviews where he just like, he's like, just go make it happen and just, you know, stop holding my day up. Um, like he loved when stuff looked cool, but he also knew that like to do effects, it took time and time took away from his budget and things like that. And he wanted to keep moving forward. So mm -hmm. he wasn't always the most receptive guy when it came to effects. Like he was super cool. Like on the thing, like he gave everybody sort of free reign, but I think once he like got into more like heavy studio projects where the studio's coming down mm -hmm. on him, 
So therefore he has to like manage everybody else. It was really stressful for him. Like I know, like, especially like on big trouble and they live, you know, those ended up being difficult processes for him. And ultimately like, he was like, can we just move these things along? Um, But I think what's great now is like, because you have this whole generation of filmmakers now who all grew up on practical effects. So they love them. They want them. They're embracing them. They're bringing them back. Like, I think one of the biggest people to really be sort of that behind that movement of like why practical effects matter and why we should be using them whenever we can is somebody like James Wan, mm-hmm. you know, Absolutely. like for example, one of the things that blew my mind, I did a set visit for the conjuring two years ago. And it was the scene when the young girls in her bedroom and all the crosses turn uh-huh. on the walls that was all practical. That was not digital. That was literally a team of like 25 people stationed all around those walls on a set. And when he said go, they all were turning the crosses. Like he didn't have to do that. They literally could have just put crosses in there and digitally manipulated it. That would have been probably way more easy and way more cost effective in terms of the manpower. But that wasn't like what James wanted. He knew in that moment it had to look real. Yeah, and it does. It looks real the way they're moving. You can't fake that. Yeah, yeah. and you like get, your you get that genuine reaction knows. to it too. Ugh. Yeah, yeah, and it and there's well, and that's the thing is practical effects always have a tangibility. Like you can CGI is good for like touch ups and stuff like that, but I can always tell, and that's probably because I'm a cinephile. So I've been watching films since I was extremely young, and my favorite films of all time are aliens the fly and the thing (laughs) like you know um like heavy 80s practical effects laden so i've watched these and so many times i i cannot tell you the amount of times i've watched them and the effects always just feel real as opposed to like even like I like the thing 2011. I know it's bad, but like I will, I'll go to bat for it. Um, but I wish they would have kept the practical effects that ABI did because yeah, it it the CGI in it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel real. Like it it could be the most expensive blockbuster in the entire world, and I will still notice the CGI. <laughs> like, yeah. I will say too, because I'm not somebody who's completely against digital per se, because like I think no. about like a character like Thanos, mm-hmm. like, could you imagine what Josh Brolin would have looked like in Thanos makeup? I don't think it oh, would have worked, yeah. to be really honest. Like, no, I, I agree about, with Like if you actualize that kind of a character. So I do think when you have characters of a certain stature or sort of a disconnect from reality, I think it works. But I think I just you have think to be you, really, really spot on with if it. If you can right. do it practical, you yeah. should. Like, did you guys see Werewolves by Night yet? I haven't gotten a chance. I almost watched it last night, and then I was like, I'm too tired. Didn't it's so it. worth it. It's like 52 minutes. I was going to say, I know it's only like an hour long. <laughs> but there's a character in it that is a, a, a monster. And it is definitely digitally augmented. But it was so great to see that they actually brought the, they actually had a tangible, real version of the monster in the scenes for the actors to react to and play off of. And I think, honestly, for me, that's what really elevated it. 
Um, yes. And I don't want to say exactly what character that is because that might give things away. And but Disney, you really, I really that's... highly recommend watching it because I, I was one of those things. It was one of our secret screenings at Fantastic Fest. And at first I was bummed. I was like, why is this in a movie? Like, why aren't we getting to watch a movie? Like, okay. And then I was like, oh, but it, it feels so perfect for Halloween. Where I was mm-hmm. just like, wow, I wish Marvel made like a um, hundred movies like this. Like yeah, just I... little 60 minute like excursions and like this weird little horror world it was great i do i I, it's i'm not a marvel like oh you have to see everything person um because i'm like i haven't caught up on like a ton of shows or anything like that but werewolves by night perfect october viewing i promise all right adding it to my list i have seen nothing (laughs) bad about it from film horror twitter so it must be pretty uh good (laughs) it is it's it's one i definitely recommend well, I will watch it tonight after we're finished because I can stay awake for that. And that <laughs> that's a pretty good recommend. Uh, I'm excited now. <laughs> yeah. We should just stop now and just go watch the episode. Or we could just right. do a live. Chat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll, do a li- we'll do a live. Uh, just like, oh, hold on. Commentary. We're going to. We're gonna just gonna leave it. Yeah, I was gonna say double episode. <laughs> we'll be back. <laughs> I do have to ask, who is screaming mad George? It was he somebody from the first book? I just kept seeing him get mentioned and get mentioned, and I was like, who is this guy? How did he get this nickname? You know, I, I, he actually. So it's fun. So screaming mad George, he is this brilliant artist. Um, he. He's from Japan, um, but he actually started off in, like, punk bands. Okay. Yeah. And so I think that's kind of where, like, the Screaming Mad George part came out because his real name is Jojitani. And so, like, I think, like, Screaming Mad George was just, like, this persona he took on when he was in his – when he was in, like, his music phase. And he, like, would do these really over-the-top outlandish, like, punk shows where, like – Sorry if anybody's squeamish, but it would like it looked like he was cutting off his genitals and like killing himself and like just really pushing things in ways like precursor to sort of the shock rock of the 90s that people would always get so mad about, about like certain artists who turned out to be terrible people. Right. Um, yes. You know. And but it, he was uh, like <laughs> made me really sad recently. I caught the trick-or-treat screening when it was shown in theaters. And I never thought I'd be able to see that. And the scene came on, I know. and I got really excited, and then I got really sad all at the same time. I know, I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually one of the very. I was so fortunate. I actually got to see that at Scream Fest in 2007. Oh, oh back when it debuted, it was doing the festival run. Yeah, well, it only played like two or three times, and then Warner Brothers was just like, "No, we're not doing anything with this," which was like the dumbest thing ever, obviously. Yeah, clearly. Um, but I, that was like actually one of the movies that sort of broke my career open a little bit um, because I wrote a review for it because I was like right as I was starting out as a writer. And oh, this awesome. is, just takes you back to like the MySpace days. Um, but actually <laughs> Mike Doherty reached out to me on MySpace and he was like, oh, thank you so much for the great review. You know, thank you for coming and seeing it and totally getting what I wanted to do with this movie. And he was like, I want to send you a poster. And I was like, okay. And, like, I remember, like, getting it at my office, like, 
it back because like you know i'm from chicago so i was like working in like wheaton and i was like oh my gosh and like all these like i was working for like this christian company too so they were like (laughs) doing like weird horror stuff um and i just remember like being so excited when the poster tube arrived and he had signed it and i still have it i've had this poster for like 15 years now and it's like one of my most prized things because it really it was like the first moment where i was like yeah this is what i want to do um, and being able to sort of be part of that, like the very early wave of Trick or Treat. And then we still had to wait two years until it came to Blu-ray. Yeah. Because I remember like I was working, for, my boss had gotten the Blu-ray like the week, the week it came out. And we all went to his house that night to like watch it. And it was like this huge deal. And that was 2009. Mm-hmm. So, um, And there was yeah. like no promotional stuff. It just like dropped. Yeah. And I, I, I guarantee in future volumes, there will be some Trick or Treat special effects talk. Um, that I can promise Um, but yeah so Screaming Mad George like I just he was like this guy who just made these things that like I had just never seen before and I'll tell you when I was growing up one of the things that freaked me out the most was the transformation of Debbie in Dream Master Mm -hmm. and one of the things that I did when I started off doing all of this stuff was like I wrote down the characters that made me sort of fall in love with horror the moments that really like captured my imagination as a kid and that transformation into a cockroach in dream master i was like there, i have to find screaming mad george and he's still he's back in japan he's lived there for years he teaches now and everything he went back years ago because his dad got sick and so he had to take care of him and now he just he's there um but it was just one of those i'm like i need to find this guy and i it took honestly it took like a year and a half to track him down because he didn't have a website. He didn't have like much social media. And so, and like he had a Facebook page that he never checked. And it just took a, literally a year and a half of me trying to get in touch with him until I finally got him. And then I had to do like an interview at like 4.30 in the morning because of like my <laughs> difference. And I'm trying to sound smart while I'm talking to him. But yeah, he's done such a, such amazing things. Like he's, you know, basically the the genius behind all of the, the madness of society um he also worked on um freaked for alex winter and created mm-hmm. so many i mean a, a couple different shops worked on it but screaming mad george i think was the first shop to come on board um you know he worked on uh, some of the reanimator movies he worked on the guyver along with steve wang you know so he just for me like he was one of those where i'm like i need to track this guy down how do i do this and it felt right. impossible for a really long time, but like sometimes you just have to have a little patience and it, and it happens. Like there's, I mean, there's some interviews where like I'll email somebody and like I hear back from them within a week. And then there's some people where it took like two to three years to get them to finally agree to do it or find the patience. time. Cause again, for a lot of people that are working, like they're busy. Right. You know? Sometimes a little bit of perseverance, it goes a long way. It does. And I always try to remind people of that because I think, you know, I think because of certain structures in the entertainment journalism world where it just everything feels like you should just have access to everything. Like, that's not how it works. Like, I'm sorry, I wish <laughs> it did. But it, that's not typically how things go. You know, that's not life. And I think people sometimes forget that, like, if you really want to do these kind of things like you you might have to put in a lot of legwork um you know and i think because i'm a little bit older like i have sort of this little bit of a generation where i'm like i 
I'm used to having to do months long worth of grunt work. Like I, I used to do that for like writing for a high school newspaper, which is <laughs> right. kind of ridiculous when you think about it, but that was just sort of the nature of it back then. Um, you know, so I always tell people like, sometimes it's going to be hard and you may not seem like you're going to get to do what you want to do, but just keep pushing because you never know. You just never know. And like I said, I never thought that I was going to get screaming at George. I didn't. I never thought I was going to get uh, Tom Berman, who for wow. me, when I saw Planet of the Apes as a small kid, like that movie changed me. Oh. Like it changed my DNA. And the fact that I was able to talk to him and his amazing wife, you know, and his son, you know, and his brother, like, it was just like being able to talk to all these, all the different Bermans was just amazing because their family, like their entire legacy is the effects world. Like his dad worked with Jack Pierce of like right. Universal Monster movies. Ugh, like I how mean, cool I, is that? I read that and I was like, oh my <coughs> gosh. Like that's incredible. Especially because when he was like, Hey, you could do my sculpting. <laughs> I was like, yeah. oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and the really cool thing was is like when I did the interview um with his wife, they actually she had me come out to their house because they live not they live outside of Los Angeles. So I had to do a bit of a drive to get up there it was a couple hours. Um, but what was really cool is like in their office, because at that point, uh, Tom was working on his documentary about Planet of the Apes. And mm -hmm. he had like all the makeups just sitting in his studio. And like, I got to hold actual appliances from Planet of the Apes. Wow. And I, I like, I almost cried to be really honest. I was like, I can't believe I'm touching this. This is insane. Like, well, it's it's history. It's it's it film history and it's human history. Like, I still remember the first time I saw the Planet of the Apes. My my dad had it on VHS, and we watched it. And I remember just being like, "Oh my gosh!" Like, I I couldn't believe it. Like, it's it, it's incredible. Like, it, yeah. the effects artistry is just incredible. And I mean it. I mean, everyone talks to the twist ending, but like I, to me, it was always, it was always the artistry behind the makeup. Like they looked so real and I just, oh man, I, I, I probably would have cried too. I'm with you. Yeah, I would have <laughs> been like Kristen Bell with a sloth cry. <laughs> I would have been at that, at that level. <laughs> Oh, that's, that's a fantastic reference. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, uh, so I had a question for you. What is your favorite movie monster? Oh, Do you have my one? Gosh. I know, I know. I'm making it hard. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I mean, realistically, and it sounds so basic, um, but I think for me, the first real movie monster that, like, I think imprinted on me as like a young horror fan. Um, I, I think it was Freddy Krueger, to be really honest, because like even back like then, as like I was watching the like the the first couple of, like Friday Thirteenth, like most of the time Jason's behind something, so you're not really looking at much of his face. And when you get right. it, it's like these snippets where it's like with the nightmare movies, like Freddy's face once like especially in the first one when we get that reveal when he's chasing Tina, like. You're like, what the hell is this guy? Mm -hmm. And and I always think it's really interesting too how the makeup always changes a little bit between the movies. 
like even you know even with david miller working on several different movies like they still made these tweaks to the character of freddie to sort of reflect the story which i thought was fascinating but it always felt organic to the character and i know a lot of people will like always complain about the, the makeup in new nightmare but i actually love it because oh. i think it makes sense uh, the new I nightmare always... is my actual favorite freddie uh franchise movie i love oh my new nightmare. it's my favorite sequel because i could never quite go yeah go well, beyond yes, the original great, but i do have a new sequel. nightmare poster in my dry, dining yes, room so it, yeah uh, so we just became so best friends. organic it's <laughs> scary it i don't know it just takes it to a really cool place and did its own thing and i think it was really successful at it yeah oh i yeah i was gonna say i agree with you on the new nightmare um it is definitely on par with the original like i, I and it is such a great precursor to even wes craven's later work of scream where it's just that great meta horror yeah definitely uh, Plus, it's like but, the only Freddy that looks like he ever shopped at Hot Topic. And like, how can I be mad at that? <laughs> <laughs> like he's got his big Doc Martin boots on and his leather pants and stuff. And I was like, Freddy's cool. I just like, love his design. Nice. It's so cool. I love his design in it. I feel like he'd like hang out with the crow. Oh I think my God, it's, yes. It's the first Freddy movie. I mean, really since the original that Freddy was scary. Oh, he definitely. got really funny in all the other ones. And, you know, he has this dangerous quality to him. But in New Nightmare, he is scary. Yeah, I think, too, for me, he was still kind of scary. I think it's like the, mm -hmm. the scene when he, like, rips his head back and, like, the brain is there. And you're like, oh, my God. And then he comes bursting through Jesse where you're like, oh, geez. Um, and then he, like, shows up at the pool party and he's, like, just killing random teenagers all willy-nilly. Kind of breaking the nightmare rules, but I'll allow it because it's a good set piece. Right. Um, but yeah, that was sort of the last one like that. I was just like genuinely scared of Freddy. And then three, <laughs> it was like, he's kind of scary, but he's also like, how do I not like enjoy the quippiness of him at the same time where I'm like, I right. wish he'd wisecrack with me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm like, come on, let's, 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 let's make some jokes, Freddy. Right. And how much fun would Robert England have been doing, <laughs> doing those movies? Oh, I know. Right. Yeah. Yeah, he was actually my first full sit-down interview when I moved out here. Really? Yeah, he was doing, he was shooting this web series that was on FearNet back in the day called Fear Clinic. And yeah, I remember director, it. Yeah, the director, I actually ended up working for the director for a few years because he ran a special effects shop. And so Rob was like, oh, you know, why don't you come out and hang out with us? You know, we're shooting at like the Linda Vista Hospital, which is like this really terribly haunted place that everybody shoots at because it's cheap and it you you get really great production value without having to do anything in there because it's just <laughs> so creepy and so i'm like sure i'll just come out yeah this is what you do and like you know and then at a certain point rob was like oh do you want to go talk to robert for a while and i was like okay sure and it was just me there so it wasn't like a press thing and i was just like mm -hmm. okay and so like i literally just went and like shot the shit with with robert england for like 45 minutes and we talked about opera we're like everything and the funny thing is is that in 2006 or it was 2007 because it was right before i start i got inspired to start doing like writing about horror um i was at a convention and he was there so i was having a legging camp and the line for for robert was super long because it always is and i remember waiting for like an hour and i finally get up there i couldn't say two words to him 
I couldn't talk to him. So I gave him my Freddy versus Jason poster to sign. He signs it. Thanks me. You know, says, have a great day or whatever. And I walk away and I was like, oh my God, I've been waiting my whole, like so long in my life to meet Freddy Krueger. And I just said nothing. So then I go back the last day of the convention. I'm like, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to like, I'm going to say something to, to Robert Englund. This is, I'm going to push myself. No, I chickened out again. I said <laughs> nothing because I was so nervous. So like two years later, here I am having this big conversation. And I mean, the whole time my stomach is like, I'm just like, please don't throw up. Please don't throw up. Please don't freak out. Like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, this is what I do. I just sit around talking to Freddy Cougar. And then I was like, I literally like left that day. And I was like, oh my gosh. Like, I think I called like all of my friends at home. And I was like, you won't believe this. Like, I just couldn't believe it. Like, I was like, wait, is this how it always is? I was like, I, I can't believe that, you know? So, and he's like the nicest person. I, you know, I wish, honestly, I wish he was like 15 years younger so we could get one more Freddy out of him. But honestly, like at this point, I'm like, I, I just want him to sort of enjoy his older years because he's earned that. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, but he was, he was a, honestly one of the nicest people. And because I worked, I ended up working at that shop and Robert did some other stuff with um, the effects guy and stuff like that. So I would see him you know, every couple of months come to the shop and things like that. So I actually got to know him a little bit to the point where he actually would like remember me. And I was just like, Robert, how many people do you know in your life? But I think I also helped because my name was Heather. And because right. he just had a <laughs> name camp so well. So I think it was a little bit of a cheat for him. So <laughs> speaking of Heather Langenkamp, have you seen her new um Netflix show? I've heard she's really good in it. I oh, the midnight to... the midnight club? Right. Um, it's it's wonderful. I mean, Mike Flanagan is always amazing. Like I Yes. I've yet to see anything from him that I don't like. Um I I like certain things to different degrees, but like I mean, I still I still yearn to rewatch Midnight Mass. I just yes. know I just want to see it for the first time again. I know. And I'm like, I really want to rewatch it. I really wanted to do it this month, and it was just like the month got away from me. So I'm like, maybe November is my time. Um, but I really liked the Midnight Club because it wasn't a Christopher Pike that I was super familiar with. Because um, I kind of like phased out with him about two or three years before that one came out. Mm -hmm. And but it was really cool because they they incorporate so many other Christopher Pike stories into it, which I thought was pretty cool. But she's great. Like I'm, I'm going to so genuinely happy to see her being used so well in something. I'm only going to ask for one minor spoiler. Please tell me she gets at least one good Flanagan monologue. Oh, yes. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah. Thank gosh. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's like midnight mass, five to seven minutes of a monologue, but there's like a good three to five minute one. Well, that's, I mean. That's completely okay. After Pearl, is any monologue a monologue after Pearl? <laughs> yeah, very true. Very true. I mean, it's it probably is like the best speech this side of Tony Collette freaking out in Hereditary. And that's what I yes. said in my review. Like <laughs> I, when I saw Pearl and that 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 scene hit me. Like I don't know that I took a breath the entire time. I did not from the scene the second that scene starts to the end of the credits, I like didn't breathe. I was just like, there's monologue, then the death scene, and then that ending. Like how spoiled and, have we been this year? For oh real? my goodness. So spoiled. Like it's 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 something that like I've talked to with like a, a couple of different people. Like when people talk about like great years in movies in general, like ninety nine always comes up because when you uh, look clearly. at what came out in ninety nine is like 
ridiculous. And I, I honestly think 2022 in terms of horror is like probably one of the best years next to 82. Like yeah, it's funny how 40 of, years later. In terms of horror, this year has been insane. Like, like even a lot of stuff that I didn't think was going to be very good. Like, I don't know how you feel about it, but I thought Smile looked like it was going to be so dumb. Oh, I loved Smile. And it was one of my favorite movies I've seen this year. Honestly, for me, what really, like, because I saw it the first time, because I that's one of the articles I did for the Fangoria issue um, that's out now. And the first time I saw it, I really, really liked it. And then I, when I went back and watched it again, um before doing because like they play, they it was the opening night movie at fantastic fest and i was doing the junket there and i was like yeah it's been a few months i'm gonna go see it again and honestly like the way that i related to sozy bacon's character i was just like oh my god like it was just like a whole new experience because like there's a point where like she's trying to have that discussion with her fiance and like he's not hearing her and like, mm-hmm. so she's getting frustrated, but then she's apologizing for mm-hmm. getting frustrated during it. And I was like, that's me. That's so many of us, I think. Yeah. And it was very I, I was relatable. Like, <laughs> such a really fantastic performance. And it was so fun to getting to speak with her. Cause I will be totally honest. I saw a smile and cause they had us go out to do like an early screening just to kind of like see how people were feeling about it before they started marketing it and stuff like that. And, uh, also, the marketing it, was amazing for it. Oh, totally. And it was like, I didn't, it didn't even dawn on me, like, whose daughter she was. I just knew I really liked her performance in it. And then it was like, oh, you know, we want to do something with Fangoria for it. You're, you've seen it. So why don't you take it? And I was like, sure, that sounds great. And so I'm like starting to like do some research before I have to interview her. And then I was like, oh my God, her last name is Bacon. Duh. And I was like, right. oh. And she looks so much like her mom. <laughs> I know. And then, it was like, and then I figured out that, like, there's, like, that picture from the set of Tremors when Kira's pregnant and she's visiting Kevin Bacon on the set. And I was like, oh, my God, she's the Tremors baby. And then and Tremors in our house is, like, a huge, like, that's my, my boyfriend. Like, that's, like, top five movies for him. And I was oh, like, oh, Tremors. my God, she's the Tremors baby. He was like, no, she's not. And I was like, yes. Um, and it was funny because like, I didn't really bring up her family during the, in, the interview I did with her. Cause I, it's just, I wanted to really showcase her because I just, mm-hmm. I loved her performance so much. And then when I did her junket at Fantastic Fest and I should have released this like on my Twitter or something. Cause it was just, it was a really nice moment. But like we came in and I was like, oh, you know, I'm the person who did your interview for Fango. And she's like, oh, my God, I love you so much. She was like, thank you. She's like, I can't even tell you, like, how refreshing it was to talk to somebody who didn't just want to talk about my family. She's like, because that's all everybody does. And I was like, what? You know, she's like, if I, you know, like, you know, and she was just like, it was just so nice to get to talk to somebody about me and like what I'm doing. I was just like, oh, well, thank you. Because it's just like, you know. Yeah, like her dad's been in horror movies and stuff, but like that's not the article I'm writing, you know? Right. Like um, you're, it's a showcase on her, like her amazing job and smile. Like, I did yeah. not realize until this conversation that that is who she was. I thought she was a new, fresh face on the block. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she is a fresh face on the block. Yeah. She's, she's I, never really used her family name as like for leverage because she's really sort of worked her way up from a lot of like supporting roles and things like that yeah so, we started I, talking about her parents and everything i was like oh 
Oh, so you I had the that. moment where you're like bacon. Oh, bacon, bacon. Oh yeah. my gosh, bacon. And then, yeah, here's <laughs> And then it was funny because at the end of our interview, she was like, "Oh, you know," she's like, "I was so excited. I told my dad I was going to be in Fangoria, and he was like, oh, I can't wait to read it.'" And then I was like, I literally was like, "Oh, holy crap! Kevin Bacon is going to read something that I wrote." <laughs> I was like, "Oh my god!" And that was like a whole nother level of fear. So yeah, he should mean, put a lot of effort into that article. Not that I don't ever, but I was just like, "All right, this is what I'm going to read a few extra times just to make sure I get it right." Everything right. really is. What's that? What's the saying? Six degrees of Kevin Bacon. It really is. It <laughs> I really feel is. like I feel like I've hit that now. Like you had your. Like... And it's I funny. Uh, somebody that wrote something actually... that Kevin Bacon read. <laughs> a little bit of horror. She's a bit of a horror alumnus herself. Uh, I mean, it's it's like gateway horror technically, but she was in Scream the series. Um, the first the season, mm-hmm. the yeah. the girlfriend of the of Bex Taylor Claus's character, yeah, or Klaus. And I remember, I remember seeing her in it, and I was like, oh, like this character seems like, you know, well, you know, she's doomed. But I mean, I liked her. She did a great job in it. She's in it for only a few minutes, and I was like, oh, well, I was like, wow, she's good. And then I saw the name, and I was like, bacon. <laughs> It is right. <laughs> well, and it's more of the way she looks just like Tira Sedgwick. <laughs> she looks so much like her. <laughs> she really does, yeah. Um what was it like getting to talk to all of these masters? Like I am so jealous hearing <laughs> the stories. Um often all of in- these Oh, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. I apologize. All of the people behind the scenes of the craft and everything. I know it's really... Uh, oh, what word am I even looking for? It would be really uh, difficult talking to, you know, Kevin Bacon because we've seen him on screen for so many years. But these are behind the scenes people that make the movies special. What is that like talking to them? Um it's generally intimidating to be really honest because like for as much as I am a professional and I always try to go, you know, I go into any interview that I do, whether it's for the books or just regular journalism stuff. Like I always come at it as a pro, but the reality is, is like deep down, I'm still a fan. Um, and it's, it can be really overwhelming sometimes, like, especially like with the book stuff, like the fact that these people trusted me to tell their stories like to me, that's like this huge sort of level that you have to be at for somebody to be able to like trust you with that because you don't, you know what I mean? Like you don't want just anybody to be out there just telling your story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for me to establish that trust, it was part of the reason why I always told everybody like, you're going to get a chance to read this chapter before it goes to print because if you're not happy, I'm not going to be happy because nothing like I know that I have a certain level of like identification within the horror community in general. Like I know people know, you know, that I'm a writer and things like that, but nothing about these books, you know, if I'm going to borrow a wrestling term was to get me over with the horror community. Mm -hmm. For me, it's all about celebrating these people. That's why for the way that I've presented these interviews, I wanted to remove myself from that equation as much Mm -hmm. as possible because it's not about me. Um, And I feel genuinely lucky you know, that so many people have trusted me with this sort of task 
because like that's huge like to have people that genuinely made me fall in love with horror and that I respect and I admire so much to be like yeah I would love to be a part of this like that's huge and you know and even like in the junket scene and doing things like that like there's always moments where I'm just like oh my god pinch me like I can remember I guess like I'm sort of on sabbatical and I don't know quite exactly if I'll be back in the journalism entertainment world typically like how I have been for the last 15 years once I'm done with the sabbatical Mm -hmm. um but so I feel I feel okay sharing the story and I'll speak kind of vaguely but you'll know who I'm talking about um (laughs) so it was 2018 and I was I drove down to comic-con because they were doing press for Halloween 2018 Mm-hmm. and it was a mess the comic-con press ops are always a mess and so they put us at this round table and it was myself and pretty much the rest of the table were dudes fine whatever i'm used to that and so the talent sits down and it's jamie lee and some other folks i'll leave it at that and these two guys in particular just take over they just they just start asking questions like they didn't even let them say hello pretty much like they just they just started these two journalist guys and they just keep going and going and you only get like 10 to maybe 15 minutes when you're doing these things because they got schedules they got to get to all these different things and so we're sitting there and i'm like okay i i, I want to ask a question i'm like i'm sitting right across from jamie I'm just like okay i gotta do this and one of the people I was sitting next to on the other side of me was um, this really amazing writer, Rafael Montoya. Um, and I've, I've actually, a month mayor, sorry. Um, and I've gotten to be able to be friendly with him because I see him at festivals and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. But he's actually based uh, overseas. So he was, you know, there covering. And I, it was like the publicist comes in. And at this point, it was just these two guys that kept talking. And so finally they're like, okay, we have time for one last question. And I really wanted to get in there. But I knew he was sort of this up and coming writer. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to let him jump in and say something because we didn't have a chance to say anything. And there was even other writers at the table who didn't say anything at all. And so Raphael asks his question and they're like, okay, that's time. And I don't know if it was like Jamie caught my vibes or something where she was just like, oh, she's like, you look like you really wanted to say something. She's like, what did you want to ask? And the publicist is like, we really got to go. And Jamie's like, no, no, it's okay. Just hold on. And I'll just say a certain other person associated with the movie, basically, and this is somebody that I've known for a very, pretty much since 2009, when maybe a certain paranormal movie came out that they were involved with. And maybe this person also used to have me come out to their studio to watch their movies early to give them impressions. So he knows me very well and basically says, oh, she's just here to observe. And I had (laughs) never felt smaller in my entire life in that moment. And I just was like, it took all of my like control to not just cry in that very moment. And Jamie was like, and like she just looked at me she's like she's not here to do that she's like what did you want to ask and she she held up everything so I could ask that like ask her a question and that to me I was like oh my god and then a few months later when they're doing the actual press days for Halloween 2018 they had very intimate sort of conversations where it was like four or five of us would talk with talent 
And she came over to our table, sat right next to me, which was like, oh my God, what is happening right now? And <laughs> it was one of those things where like, I remember getting steamrolled at Comic-Con. I was like, I am not letting that happen again. And so I just kind of took charge. I asked the first question. I let everybody else kind of ask questions and stuff like that. And then I asked her, uh, and Halloween, uh, one of the scenes in Halloween 2018 that really affected me was the scene where she's sitting in the truck. Mm-hmm. Gone. And Michael's mm-hmm. being loaded onto the, tr- onto the thing. And she's just, it's the first moment we see her really have like emotion. And she was just looked at me. She's like, I'm so glad you asked me about that scene. She's like, it's my, one of my very favorite scenes I've ever done. And so we had this really great conversation about it. And then afterwards, because it was just like a group of like a couple of us. And I, I never asked for like photos of these things, but I was like, you know what? I don't know if this moment's ever going to happen again. So I asked her for a photo and she was like, oh yes, of course. And so we took a photo. And again, I was a situation where I'm the only girl at this like little thing there. And then it was funny because like another person behind me was like, oh, can I get a photo too, Jamie? She's like, oh, no, I got to go. And I was like, I love you so much right now. Because I actually think she remembered the thing from comic. I like when she sat down, she was just like, oh, hello. And I think she remembered that interaction from Comic-Con just like two months earlier. I so, bet I could see her remembering that. So and honestly, like I in my saw term, that. I yeah. think you posted that photo the other day, and if you I did. did, I saw it, and it I still wondered makes what me this, emotional. I wondered what the story was behind that. So I'm glad you shared that. Yeah, and honestly, like it's it, if my career would have ended that day, I would be fine, because it just genuinely was like one of the the biggest moments I think for me on a personal level, where I was just like, wow, like because sometimes people go through junkets, and you just know that they're there to say what they need to say to get it over with, right. and like. Especially with Halloween 2018, everybody was really dialed in then. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yes. Like everybody was really <laughs> into talking about it and really embracing like reactions. I don't know necessarily if I would say the same about the other two, but also with with kills, they had to like wait because of COVID and stuff. So everything was weird. But like just to have that kind of level of interaction with 2018 was just like, wow, like I get to cover a Halloween movie because I I will say like when I first started off, I didn't really get to cover, like I was just starting out when the first Rob Zombie Halloween came out. And then when Halloween two came out, like for some reason we just, and I was working for one of the bigger sites at that point, we just couldn't get interviews for some weird reason. And I don't know why, I don't know if it was because somebody else on the site had bashed the first movie or something, which happens sometimes, you know, they're like, well, why are we going to give you time? You know, when you did a, you know, a bad, you know, that you you basically called us a piece of crap, you know, and said a lot of terrible things. Like I get it, you know, it's, right. it's how it works sometimes. Um, so for me, like to be able to actually get to cover like a Halloween movie was like amazing, and to get to do it at that level, I was just like, oh, like like I said, if that would have been it for me after that moment, I'd have been fine. Like I'd, I, I had zero regrets. I feel like I would agree with that sentiment. <laughs> Yeah, that, yeah. honestly, that is one of the most amazing stories I've ever heard. Oh, like, thank you. And, it, and it's like, and it makes me a little sad because I've been hearing some not so nice stories about Jamie um, from the premiere for Ends mm-hmm. because I guess Danielle and also Ed, in relationship to the Rob Zombie's Halloween series. Yeah. And like, I guess Danielle and Scout have a podcast together. And I guess maybe their interaction with Jamie wasn't the best at the premiere and I'm not going to, I wasn't there. I don't know exactly what happened, but 
I mean, I'm guessing that night was probably pretty overwhelming for Jamie. Like this is a 44 year chapter in her life that is coming to end at that very moment. And there's so many people she has to talk to and so many people she has to like interact with and smile at and like just be on for the entire mm -hmm. time that it was probably a lot for her in that moment. So, you know, I'm never going to like point fingers one way or the other, but I can say genuinely that I've had really great interactions with her that weren't just her putting on a show because she didn't have to do the things that she did. Right. I yeah. also think, I mean, she, she's been very outspoken about the fact that she doesn't like scary movies. Yeah. So, I mean, like she, she really only came back for the fans. Like, yeah, she, I don't she, even know that like she, she would have watched Rob Zombie's Halloween movies no. to never clue who they were. <laughs> no, definitely. Or even, you know, because she just said basically if John Carpenter wasn't involved, I didn't care. And right. which makes sense because she had a relationship with John, you know? And so why would she, you know, at, at the right. point that like Halloween four and five were coming out, like she's doing in such, she's in such different circles at that point, you know? So what, why was she going to sit and watch, you know, Halloween four and five? Like we know they're amazing and we know yeah. Danielle is amazing. I mean, like we just rewatched the Rob Zombie Halloween movies. And honestly, like I hated them when they first came out. I love them now. I love um, yeah. Scout's performance. I love Dude, it so in much. Halloween two, my God, like it's, it's one of the few like straight up horror, horror movies that makes me cry. Mm -hmm. Like I we just rewatched it last weekend and I still, I bawled. The scene with Annie. Oh my God. Yes. And then, and then Rob Zombie has the audacity oh. to give us like home video footage. Like how dare you manipulate mm -hmm. me like that, sir? <laughs> because Rob Zombie is amazing and I will be taking no questions. Yes, I agree. <laughs> I agree. So, yeah. And it was nice too, because like speaking of Rob Zombie, like I've been able to, you know, between the books and like now with the new issue of Fangoria, like really get to put the spotlight on Wayne Toth, who's been uh, working mm -hmm. with him since the Hellbilly Deluxe album. And he has been doing amazing work. Yeah. Like he used to do all the stuff for his tours and things like that. He might still do it to a degree, but I think also Rob sort of reuses some of the stuff. So I don't know how much new stuff he's making for him. Um, but I think Rob is a guy who keeps everything. So he's going to break I out the big giant I 100% believe that. Yeah, you know, I'm sure he's got like this big storage locker somewhere where he's got giant Frankensteins and crazy monster heads just hanging around. And I want to I want to be there. I would <laughs> love to go hang out at his place at some point. That would yeah. be a, a dream come true for me. <laughs> we could do a um, tour of like his house and Guillermo del Toro's house. Uh, in a day. Uh, like every horror fan would just be like so happy. Yeah, I, I don't know if I could handle both of them in a day. That's <laughs> It's just too much. <laughs> So many emotions. I would just be crying all day. I couldn't handle <laughs> it. Um, I will say, you mentioned a couple times uh, things. You were the only woman there. Sean, I know, had a question yes. about along those lines. I did. Um, I In your interview with Michelle, um, and she's a major trailblazer for women in film makeup, she referred to it as a boys, boys game. Um, yeah. You think that is still true? You know, I think there have been changes, but I feel still think predominantly it probably is. But I think there's there has been a little of an evening out to a degree, and I think a lot of that has to do with V Neal, because you know not only has like V like started her own school, 
Um, you know, but she's also like mentored a lot of women in the industry. Um, I know Michelle to a degree, you know, after we did her interview, like I know that she's actually worked with a lot of like up and coming female artists. And I think also too, because the industry itself has sort of shifted a little bit, um, mm -hmm. to where you get to see a little bit more, not as much as I would hope for. Um, but like somebody like Sierra Russell, who works with her husband, Josh, they both own a, uh, Russell effects. Uh, they both just did the the brand new Hellraiser that just uh, came out on Hulu. Mm -hmm. um, and they've been doing amazing work for years. So to see somebody who's not only a shop owner, but, you know, a really talented artist, too. Like, you know, she it, it makes me happy to see that because, you know, I mean, it's it's probably better now than it was in the 80s. And I know that for a fact, because there are a handful of women artists that I reached out to throughout this process who just didn't want to talk. And I'm going to guess that there's probably pretty good reasons right. behind that. Probably. You know, and I'm going to respect that. And I'm not going to, you know, that's, I get it. You know, I, I don't want to ever want to put somebody through trauma in recounting their life story. Um, so, but I think. By the way, because... that's possible? <laughs> Possibly. Um, but yeah, I just, I felt like, I, I feel like, especially these days too, I think there's a little more of accountability that happens in the industry where I don't think people get away with things as much as they used to. There's, that doesn't mean that they're not still doing them, but eventually someone's going to talk and someone's going to find out. Right. So, but yeah, I think it's better. Like, I think for me too, like, honestly, like when I started off doing this, doing like the journalism stuff, um, again, we're talking like late 2000s. So this was like 2007. Like I could probably count on one hand, the amount of female, other female writers in the horror space that were out there that I knew of. Um, and these days I would almost say that it's almost 50, 50 to a degree, which is really nice. Yeah, absolutely. It, just, it, it feels like it's, it's definitely more inclusive than it used to be. Well, and that's exactly it is. It's, it's nice to actually hear a female voice on a lot of the things that are coming out, especially because horror is such a genre that is, you know, dominated by female characters in a lot of ways. Um, like if anything from the trope of a final girl to, you know, the psycho bitty <laughs> film genre, like it, it, these are women have a major part in film and it's nice to hear, like have it, see them actually have an actual voice to give. And that's why I was like, I was the interview with, uh, with Michelle Burke was just beautiful and she was it, she said it she was like i i was a trailblazer and i was she's absolutely right she and v neil like even even now i can't think of as many at, who absolutely hit as hard as they did yeah. i just I, I really i it's just i i saw that and i was like oh i was like i've got to ask the question yeah <laughs> i was like it not is, to try and get too deep but no, and it's, it's true. And, and the thing is, it's like there, there, you know, there was a lot of disparity in the special effects world back then. Because I'm, I'm going to be really honest with you, like, I there, there were no black special effects artists back then. I don't yeah. know how to explain it, and I'm, I'm not even saying that like as a blanket statement because I didn't do the research. But I can't even tell you how many crew lists that I read for like three years straight. Because I'm like somebody out there, like, because I wanted that representation because I'm, I would be so sure that their experiences would be different. 
Mm -hmm. I couldn't, I no. but I was lucky enough to like, you know, I have, you know, a lot of artists from around the world, which is great. Like, you know, we have like Screaming Man George and Steve Wang. And in this book, we have Kazuhiro who, you know, he's also just a phenomenal artist, but also getting to speak to like somebody who's uh, Joey Roscoe, who he's Native American, um, you know, just being able to have that kind of representation. Because the thing is, like when I started this, I just didn't want it to be white guys, the book, Mm -hmm. because like, you know, there's nothing more frustrating to me. Like if I'm watching a documentary or I'm reading something and it's this, the same perspectives represented over and over and over again. Yes. Um, you know, so that's why it's like, I wish, and it's like, I'm sure people are like, well, why aren't there more women in these books? Honestly, because I was only able to get like eight or nine interviews total because I think the industry was a much different place from women back then. And a lot Absolutely. of them, I think got, got kind of chased out you know over the years and the, the boys club mentality exactly but you did but you did have like certain artists who were very welcoming to women and you know we talked about him earlier but john carl beekler was one of them like mm-hmm. he never like you know never treated the women differently than the men and always gave them the same opportunities to learn everything that the men were learning you know and that's why he's a guy who came up in like um Erin Kruger Mikash's interview. She and she's like, mm-hmm. you know, Emmy Award winning artist who's been basically doing a ton of stuff for Ryan Murphy for years. Um, I believe Michelle Burke might have actually worked for him for a little bit. Um, no, actually, no, she wasn't her, it was somebody else. Um, but yeah, like chances are like if you were somebody who really needed a break. You know, and there was a lot of women who wanted it. Like you went through John's shop, and he always had held the door open for them. And there were he quite made a few the art matter. I, yeah, and he there was a, quite a few women that I approached that I know went through John's shop, who weren't comfortable talking. Not that it had anything to do with his shop particularly, but you know, no, but it's still there a, been I, more. Yeah, I was gonna say, and and that's always good, but it it's always sad when you hear that someone can't or doesn't feel comfortable sharing their story or just, you know, doesn't want to, you know, if they've had an experience where it's, a, yeah. it's just rough. I just, it's, I, it's, that was, I found it fascinating. So I was like, I have got to ask that question. <laughs> yeah. It's, it is a bummer, but I always have to respect people's decisions. And I'll be honest, like one of the women that I definitely wanted to talk to because she worked on so many different prominent things and she'll be in a future uh, installment. I don't know if she's in three or four. I think she might be in three. Um, is Margaret Prentice, who basically was Rob Bottin's right-hand person throughout so many different productions. And it was interesting because she was somebody who I had to work for a few years to convince to talk to me. Not that she didn't want to necessarily, but everybody always came to her to try to get to Rob. Because Rob, you know, famously has sort of gone off the grid and that's that's his choice and he just isn't you know available to people yeah. he's fine he's living his life he's doing well good um, i've always wondered i i know he kind of he once he stopped he was done and i know he's kind of yeah I think, off you know, it. i've always just so wished young. him the best <laughs> yeah i think honestly him being so young in this industry just really put him through the paces yeah i was gonna know? say he's he, even when he like uh, just watching the thing interviews when he's talking about it and talking about seven days a week and 
you know, sometimes 12 to 18 hour days. And oh, yeah, he had I was to go just to the like, hospital. he, yeah, from uh, exhaustion. I was going to say, I, I feel like he burned bright and kind of burned quickly. <laughs> yeah. And it, again, back kind of... then, it wasn't an industry that really respected that kind of talent either. Exactly. You know, most people were like, oh, he's just a guy to hire, you know. But with Margaret, like, I had to basically say, like, you know, it's cool that you know Rob and everything. And I'm sure he's going to come up in our conversations. But this is about you. You know, I'm, I'm not here to prod you for information to get to Rob. Like, right. I've always wanted to talk to him. And believe me, I've, I've always had this dream of, like, being able to track him down. But I would never use her as the way to do it. Mm -hmm. Because, right. honestly, her filmography alone is so worthy of being able to celebrate on its own without having to, to do that. Yeah, so, and I, yeah it, she has her own experiences. Yeah, but yeah, it took a long time because... Apparently, so many people have like reached out to interview over the years, and then halfway through the interview, it's all about Rob. And I get it; like that's that's not fun to experience. No. So. Well, it's the same thing you did with Sosie Bacon. It's uh, you know, like people want to be seen and seen for what they're doing, and yeah. I, that's what I love about your book is you're seeing the artists past their art which is awesome. And like, I mean, the art will always be celebrated, but sometimes we forget that the art comes from people. And yeah. I, I just really love like the fact that you put like, they give you like their life backgrounds and they give you a little bit of an insight into like how they tick or, or, or what makes them, you know, like giddy with joy. And I, I just really enjoyed that aspect of your books. It's just the fact that you, you were, lo you're looking at the artist plus the art like, yeah it's... well thank you that's really what I, I tried to do um so it's nice to hear that I I, I was able to do that because honestly oh. it was one of my directives going into this you did and it's a it, hundred percent I was reading it and I mean I teared up a couple times uh like over their stories or I I laughed out loud which kind of scared some people out earlier because <laughs> <But laughs> <laughs> uh, I was I was I was getting through some I was reading some of it at work um before my before we opened and I was like I just laugh out loud and it's just I even your prose in the book your your questions are directed like almost like you're narrating to get to them to their next paragraph and I think yeah. that's just such such a great way to do it like Oh, thank you. Yeah. Again, it's one of those, I didn't want people to think I was like trying to like do shortcuts by any means because it really wasn't that. But honestly, it was like, you don't need me to throw a bunch of fancy words at you. Like, I'd rather let these people talk. And it was like, actually, with Kazu, like, he questioned me about that. He was like, well, this is just a lot of me answering. And I was like, yes, that's the point of this. Like, mm -hmm. I'm going to frame it in a way where it's like, it's your, it's a conversation about your life. They don't need to hear from me. They don't need my insights necessarily. Like I'm going to frame what you're going to talk about, but it really is your story to tell. It's not mine. You know, I'm just sort of putting it out there so people can read it and enjoy it. And then once he realized what I was doing I was, and he was like, oh, okay. I was like, okay, cool. Cause I just didn't want him to like, <laughs> I, you know, again, it's like, I'm not trying to cheat and do it the easy way or anything, but I'm like, this isn't about like me being able to show off what I can 
and can't do as a writer. Like I know what I'm capable of. Like this is more about like, this is you, this is your life. You should be the one getting to tell the story. So, and it's like, and it, I've, I've had to break format a little bit. Like one of the interviews for this book is more Q and A style only because um, Chris Wayless, who is one of my favorite artists ever, mm-hmm. he has some hearing difficulties these days. So it's not, uh, he's not able to do traditional sit on the phone and have a conversation interviews. So honestly, the interview that we have in the book is like a few years of us going back and forth with like questions oh. and answers and things like that. So that was like oh. interview in an interview itself that probably took like a little over two years to put together. Oh, wow. No, but that's awesome because you get, I mean, you're getting, you're getting his answers thought out too. Like, which I'm sure is really cool because he gives you some time to probably go into a little bit more detail if he's writing it out. Exactly. And also too, because then I can kind of like be responsive to the things that he said and like figure out what, what things I want to expand on and like, you know, and what things I'm like, okay, like we've heard enough on this, let's move on to this. Um, So yeah, I I felt a little like I was, I did feel like I cheated a little with the Chris Wayless episode, episode, no. Uh, after. <laughs> um, I wish they were episodes. I oh do. I would watch this documentary <laughs> so bad. <laughs> I should over to Shutter. Maybe I'll do that one of these days. Oh my um, gosh! You know they would. I would shut up and take my money. Like did pretty well, and that was like a really good way of like showcasing who Tom was beyond this guy who like made Dawn of the Dead and you know Friday Four and the original Friday like. They showed him as like a grandpa and like a guy who stepped up and raised his daughter pretty much almost like on his own while he was still working in the industry, which is like a pretty impossible feat. So, you know, I think there's a way to do these things, but you know, who knows? I don't know. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't want to, I would never put my hopes on anything like that, but it would be really cool. Um, but yeah. And I think honestly too, like there's, I'll probably have to break my, my typical format um, because I did get to, um, in the last few years, I did get to talk to the Kyoto brothers, Ooh, um, oh. but I talked to all three at the same time. So it really is this back and forth where like sometimes one of them's answering and the other one's like, like he'll start saying a sentence and then the other one chimes in and to finish that thought. And so there's like a lot of overlapping. And I remember um originally when I was trying to do this for Fangoria and I was like guys like I don't know how to to write this out <laughs> in a normal way without just doing the Q&A format and they're like oh no you have to do it normal it's like oh my god I don't know how to make this work otherwise um <laughs> so I think that's another one that I'm just gonna have to like treat in that sort of Q&A style because it's like it's just not gonna work otherwise I mean right, however you, you have to do it however you have to do it yeah, that's kind of my opinion at this point where I'm like, I just want to get it out there. And I, you know, just stressing over a format feels silly at this point where it's like, it's not going to really take away from what the fans are going to get to read about. So I will say, Sean, please tell her what you were laughing about this morning. <laughs> oh, yes. So the one I was la- <laughs> the one I was laughing about the most, this was my question. Another question that I had. Um, so it was your interview with Guy Himber, because uh, I was just kind of going through everything. And he mentions that he, he and his crew were confused when production told them that Bill Nye, the science guy, was going to play Victor in Underworld. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you think Bill Nye could pull it off? <laughs> you know, you'd be surprised, but I bet if you, I, you know, I, Bill Nye now 
Yes. Oh, I think yeah. He could. Yeah, I, I was gonna say could. I saw that one video where he was angry at the uh, over the environment. I was like, yeah, no, I'm okay with this. I'm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I would I would pay money to see that movie. To be really yeah. honest, I know? would pay money to see that movie, but I cannot picture anyone. Except, but Bill Nye, yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I went Bill Nye, not Bill Nye. <laughs> I also laughed out loud reading this book at a very different part. Uh, you were talking to the gentleman who had worked on arachnophobia and his comment about painting the spiders. <laughs> oh, he just said, he said, the spiders were very ill-tempered. Yes. And I thought that was the funniest thing I had heard anybody say in a long time. Just like, I didn't enjoy doing that. The spiders were very ill tempered. And I was just like, I bet they were being held upside down and being painted and made to act in a movie. Oh my gosh, right? I, uh, yeah. And it's funny because it's like, that's like such a family movie. That movie, like, I have to work myself up to watch it because I just, I hate spiders so much. I <laughs> have a horrible arachnophobia for a long time. And a few years back, I actually bought myself a little tarantula to help me get over it. Because I was like, this is ridiculous. You were almost 30 years old at that point. Um, and you're living alone. What do you do if there's a spider? You can't just stand there and cry. And <laughs> so I got this tarantula and I did get over my fear of spiders, but one of my cats sat on the spider tank after, after a new year's party one day and I never saw it again. I like to think that it's living happily in the walls of that apartment building. Oh my God. Slowly getting fatter. <laughs> but it was, wow. it was from South America and it was during a cold Midwest winter. So I'm pretty sure it shriveled and died. Oh my goodness. But I did get over my arachnophobia. I can like gently carry a spider outside now and not like have a panic attack or cry or anything. And it's funny because when I was growing up, we had one of my mom's boyfriends lived with us for a few years and he actually had a tarantula that he moved into our house. And it was, his name was Dirty Harry. Um, (laughs) And like, and you'd think like I would get used to that. Oh no. Like when, when Dirty Harry finally died, like, they just thought the best way to deal with it was to flush him down the toilet. Um, I did not use the bathroom in my house for, like, two weeks. Like, I swear to God, like, my best friend lived two houses away. Like, I either would, like, go to her house or I'd wait till I got to school. Like, I no. I would shower, but, like, no, if I had to pee, like, I would just, like, I'd just nope. wait. Not here. So, uh, <laughs> toilet best... spiders are a real thing, I'm telling you. They'll get you. This would yeah. have been whenever Rob Zombie's first Halloween movie came out on home video. Okay. I was living in Florida at the time and I was at my best friend's house and we watched Rob Zombie's Halloween. He had a pet tarantula and knew. He knew how scared I was of spiders. And he thought it was really funny to come up behind me when I was like not paying attention and sat that tarantula on my head and I just froze in panic as this Oh my God. And it, it was it was big too. And it like went down my face and down my shirt and was just like tapping on me. And oh my goodness, I was like crying. And he was just sitting there laughing at me. And I was just like, I hate boys. I hate boys so much. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, no, thank you. Oh my gosh, that is, that is horrible. Uh, (laughs) Well, I have one final question for you. At least for mine. I think you have two really good questions, actually, that you haven't gotten to. 
Oh, uh, you're right. I do have two. I skipped one because we were kind of going through it. Uh, I was gonna say, well, technically I have three, but one of those I'm gonna I'm gonna skip over because um, you already went into it, so I don't want to go make you go back. <laughs> um, gotcha. But what is the best piece of advice you've heard for aspiring makeup and effects artists? You know, I think honestly, it's practice, and I think it's it's not to be to let things like professional. I'm trying to think of the best way to phrase this to not let sort of professional like dogma not dogma but like sort of like okay well you know if if some kid in, is living in Idaho let me I'm trying to figure out the best way to phrase this and he's like oh my god I want to do special effects but like what are what are his resources living in Idaho like he can get some stuff shipped but he's like there's not makeup schools there typically right. there's not you know, makeup stores like we have all over the place in Los Angeles. So like, what are his options? And so for me, like everybody always talks about like, just find what you can and just start creating. Like who cares about what you're using to do these things? Because like, if you read some of these stories, like when these people were kids, I mean, some of them are just like using actual clay to do yeah. these things because like on their faces, which isn't something you typically do these days. Um, but it was just like anything you get your hands on, like somebody, I, I'm blanking on who it was, but it was like, you know, they were growing up in like completely removed from like a big metropolitan area, but like their mom would take them to the local pharmacy and they would just find like interesting makeup, just typical makeup for women, like, or, you know, just regular everyday makeup and finding ways to use that to take it further. And I think the, the reality is, is if you want to be somebody who is creative, don't let your geography or your accessibility to certain things stopping you. Just create because you're only going to keep getting better regardless of what you're doing. And I think even these days too, with like YouTube and things like that out there, where like you don't have to typically go through special programs. You know, it's always good to have some sort of formal training to a degree because I think it helps people like working on sets and things like that, but you don't mm -hmm. have to, you know, I think it's, if you can just find a way to do it and just do it. And, you know, and it sounds, it, it's, I feel like I'm oversimplifying it, but like, that's even like the same way for me with writing. Like it wasn't like when I started off, I was like at one of the biggest websites ever, you know, it was just like, I want to write about these things. I'm going to find a way to do it. Okay. Now I'm doing it. Like, how do I keep pushing forward with it? And just finding a way to sort of blaze your own path. And I think another thing that's important too is like, you're going to find artists that you're, you're going to be inspired by, but you're never going to be them. So don't do that. Be, be the artist you want to be. You can be, you know, you can love the work of Steve Johnson. You can love Rick Baker's work. You can love Tom Savini, but you're never going to be those guys. Be you. Right you know, and find the things that you admire about their work and find a way to like put your own stamp on it. Because I think so many people, you know, and it's, I see this even in writing and stuff like that, where people sort of emulate people who've either been successful or that they admire. And it's, there's, you lose that sort of authenticity. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, even if you make the worst Frankenstein monster ever, it's yours. It's still yours. 
and there's always a way to like look at it and figure out how like well how am I going to do it differently next time um so it's just like the things that you you think are going to like stop you from doing these sorts of things don't let them do that you know don't let circumstances take away what you're passionate about um you know and I, it's funny because like I have a friend who's kid um was really into like special effects and I'm, I'm hoping that they're still into it um when the first couple books came out and that they like started like going and like buying things like online that they would find um or even at like halloween time when you would go to like you know you can go to walgreens or something and you have like all these like little cheap makeup kits mm -hmm. but it was a way to sort of teach themselves and like there was a time where like my niece wanted to figure out how to be become a zombie and like create a zombie bite on her arm. So I literally was just like, okay, I know of a couple schools out here and they actually had like little tutorials on their website. And I sent her like a couple of videos and I was like, watch this. And like two weeks later, she sent me a photo and she created a little zombie bite on her hand. Oh, that's and it so looked cool. cool. Yeah. And she was like 10 years old or something like that. Um, you know, so like, it's, it's always going to feel impossible and I'm never going to lie and try to tell somebody it's, it'll be easy, but if mm -hmm. it's something you're genuinely passionate about, just go out and do it. Like, you know, you're not going to like start messing around with this stuff and then like in a year you're working on like a movie set, but you have to be willing to like the, it's sort of the trial and error process mm -hmm. I think is so important. And I think honestly, like something like face off kind of took that out of the equation. And I think for a lot of like special effects um, artists who were coming up around that time, like they thought it was like, I'm going to go on face off and then I'm going to have this huge career. And I think what they're forgetting is all of their predecessors really had to put the work in to get where they got like, sure. Like Rick Baker is like this amazing guy, but you know what? He was Dick Smith's apprentice first and mm -hmm. foremost, like he was sweeping floors at Dick Smith's studio at some point in his career. Like he didn't just show up one day and it was like, oh my God, it's Rick Baker here. Go, you know, go make this amazing thing, you know, on Ghostbusters or whatever, you know, he had to work up to get there. And I think, you know, just be willing to do the work to push yourself and just constantly learning. I, it's, it's something that like, you know, even for what I do, like I'm always reading, I'm always writing because it's the only way to keep getting better. Like I, like I said, I've been doing this forever. Um, but I don't feel like I'm still at the best that I could possibly be. I'm always trying to be better because I know that's what this is. It's just, it's always a learning process and you have to be willing to keep pushing yourself and just, you know, if you really feel passionate about it, just don't let circumstances ever stand in your way because it may seem impossible, but it only is if you think it is. Yeah. A lot of the people in your book, I mean, they talked about paying their dues and working their way up and just learning everywhere they could and doing whatever they could. It was really inspiring. I don't have a creative bone in my body in that way. And I was just like, I can go do it. I can go make a monster. <laughs> you probably, you can go get a piece of paper, get some finger paints. You never oh, know. Oh my goodness. My stick figures look bad, Hey, but it was know, just, it was inspiring. Art is fun. You know, you never know. <laughs> You never know. I mean, maybe I, I could make a nice ashtray, but where where <laughs> my artistic abilities lie elsewhere. There's there's uh, always different ways to be creative. Exactly. 
Oh, I really love that advice. I really do. Like, um, I'm not gonna lie. I just wrote just create on my <laughs> on my notepad. Yeah, that's, that's really what you have to do. Absolutely, it just sounds inspiring. So simple, but like honestly, that's like just the best way to go out there and do it. It's the you Stephen know? King principle. You just sit down. You <laughs> just do it. Just yeah. do it every day. And think about like how he used to have to do it, it was just like on a typewriter. It wasn't like he could just go oh back my and delete God. pages I and know. stuff. Like <laughs> it was like, oh, if something didn't work, you just had to start that entire page over again. Oh, yeah. You know. So for as hard as we think we might have it these days, it's always been harder. <laughs> at yeah. some yep. point. I remember typewriters. Not very well, but I did we had one at home. I remember using it as a child. Um, when I had a pen pal or something, <laughs> I, was I had just a, like, like this thing is confusing. Yeah, I had like a, a I really wanted a real typewriter because I always loved writing and we just couldn't afford it. So I had like a toy typewriter, but my They're best so friend's, cool though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it was awesome, and I I got I use out of it. But my best friend's parents had a typewriter, and I'll tell you, I used to spend so much time just sitting at their house, like just typing stories and all kinds of things. Like in fact, um, I shared this story. Um, on a different show. So if anybody happens to listen to both, I apologize for the overlap. But <laughs> I am probably the only like kid in the 80s who like wrote my own sequel to the to DOA, which was like the Dennis Quaid Meg Ryan movie, which I think was a remake. <laughs> but I wrote DOA too for some weird reason. But like her parents were like for some reason like were renting it a lot at that time or something. And I just, I'd seen it a bunch and I was like, I'm going to write a sequel to this movie. And I never knew like what happened to it. I remember doing it, but then it was like, I, like years ago when I was back home visiting and my friend, like her mom had kept it and oh, actually showed awesome. it to me. I was like, what? So it was just like, weird. I was like, wow, really? Cause like sometimes I would just leave stuff over there, but yeah. So no. I, it's like, it's a weird random thing, but I love the, cl the click clack of a typewriter. I love it. Yes. I, really wish you had written a sequel to Joe versus the volcano because that's what I want to know what happened next. Yes. Uh. <laughs> Maybe I'll have to go back and do that. No, it's, it's perfection. <laughs> How do you build upon perfection? I don't know. That is true. <laughs> I'm glad you think that that's perfect. I think it's perfect, but oh, it's I feel like movie. whenever I try to show it to people, they just don't get its charms and I don't know. I need better people, I guess. I'm, I'm all about I'm all about you know opinions are subjective but those people are wrong. Yes, I agree with that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> her little thing with the crabs and also her poem is cinematic genius. I mean, that is Meg Ryan at the top of her game. <laughs> yeah, I, I think also too maybe that movie was like it was just so underappreciated because I think so many people went to that movie thinking it was going to be one thing and then ended up being something completely different. Yeah. Cause I would, I think I even, I, I, I remember like when we went and saw it, like, I think we thought it was going to be this one thing. Like, Cause I think even the marketing was very different than the movie. I'm trying to remember exactly how they framed it. I, I was not around during, when did that movie even come out? The late eighties, 90. Um, I was born at the end it was of 98, so I would not have remembered the marketing for it, but I have wondered personally what on earth the marketing must have been like for that movie because how would you market that? Yeah. It's uh it was it was very it was very different, I think, than the movie actually was. So because I think we were sort of thinking it was like more of like an adventure movie kind of. 
And it is to a degree, but it's more of this sort of like reflect, like reflective story. About who we are as people and society. Yeah. (laughs) It's very society. Um, Sean, I don't think you've seen it, but you should watch it. I have not. (laughs) So I'm just like, I will let you guys talk about this one. (laughs) It is a classic. (laughs) It is. Put it on the podcast. I'll watch it. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I will. I'll put it on. And maybe here. you can come talk about it with us, Heather. I would love that. <laughs> Joe Bridges the Volcano is an underseen masterpiece. And yes. There, there was a kind, of, kind of a run of Tom Hanks movies at that time. Like, during that time. Yeah, um, it was like that. The Man with One Red Shoe. Like, um, even The Burbs, I think, was a movie that was oh, very much. Everybody that movie, went into that thinking the Burbs it was going to be one thing. Deeply terrified me when i was young <laughs> deeply terrified me <laughs> so if somebody starts chanting satan is good satan is our pal that probably would be like a big moment for you <laughs> uh no no not now but when i was little again i grew up very very christian and <laughs> i was very small and i don't even remember why i would have watched that movie or who would have picked it but i remember watching it on vhs and it just terrifying the shit out of me Oh, oh, by the way, this is a wonderful time to ter- tell you now, but this is explicit. You could have been swearing this whole entire time. Oh. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I'm a lady. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but if you would like to, for the last moment, swear as much I, as you like. <laughs> and I did have one more now. question. I'm yes, sorry. it's a good it's a good question, too. Okay. Yes. Um, so what is a question you've always wanted an interviewer to ask you? ask me yeah Mm -hmm. it could be about your work it could be about you anything sorry not to put you on the spot oh my gosh (laughs) i thought of it and i was like oh i want to ask that (laughs) yeah literally nobody's ever asked me that um is that the question is that the question i've been searching for all these years (laughs) oh my gosh um I don't know because like honestly like I've I've been really fortunate over the years to be able to sort of like share my stories and things like that and sort of try to give people advice and sort of share the journey that I've been on for these 15 years. Oh, oh gosh. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to make it oh, difficult. Uh, <laughs> I, mean, I think for me, like I've always sort of been a pretty open book. Um, yeah. You know, there's certain things like I'll sort of obfuscate sort of details because of professionalism. Like, for example, mm-hmm. my story earlier, like we all know who I probably was talking about, but we're not going to say the name, but we all kind of right. know who that person is. Um, you know, and I have you know, I wish I could say that was like my only bad professional experience that I've had over the years. So there's plenty of those. And like, I mean, truth be told, there was a time where like, I, I almost quit nine years ago. Um, I was just in a really bad place and I was leaving uh, a site that just was extremely toxic and hugely detriment- detrimental to my personal well-being and my mental health. And I was done in my head. Um, and then I was fortunate enough to connect with my boss, Jonathan at Daily Dead. Um, and he sort of gave me this like new lease on my career, um, which I really needed. 
and I didn't know that I needed it. But in retrospect now, nine years later, I'm like, I'm just so glad that I was able to do that. Um, but yeah, like I, there's, I've always just sort of been open about, God, this is going to torture me now. I feel like I'm, I'm like, sorry. I feel like I'm like oh. speaking by not answering, but I'm like, at four in the morning, you're going to wake that. up and be like, damn it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was, it was one of those things I've always wanted to know if like, if, if there's ever been someone who's been interviewed and they just wanted a question asked, like, and it just never happened. So I, I was like, I've always wondered that. I'm just going to ask. And yeah. Sorry. I mean, there's, there's, like, there's like gossipy questions. Like, of course, like, like who's the worst person you've ever interviewed or something like that. Um, but typically people don't ask that question, which I'm just like, and like, would oh, you want, you... would you want somebody to ask that question now? You know, at this point in my career, I probably would answer it because <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I don't care at this point. I've done everything I've needed to do. Like, I only have two interviews on my bucket list that I probably won't even get anyway. So I'm just like, you know, it's all good. Um, so I'm not really worried about like pissing people off anymore. Um, uh, yeah. I will ask. This is a small podcast, so I doubt it would be. Um, too terrible to ask you but who are the two people on your bucket list uh my bucket list is one of them is Dwayne Johnson okay um and it was funny we actually did have an interaction on Twitter and it made my life so he became my Twitter BFF um (laughs) but I I came back in I grew up watching wrestling in the 80s and then I sort of phased out of it for a few years and then I got back into it in the late 90s and I remember reading his book and I think there was a lot that I really connected with because he was a kid who like it wasn't like even though his dad was a wrestler they still didn't have a like a lot of money and he really struggled a lot to be able to sort of follow his dreams and I really like respected that um and I know he's like in a much different place now where he's like a gajillionaire or something like that and he's like his own brand and everything but like there was just something I always really respected about the hustle that it took for him to get there because it wasn't it wasn't like when he decided to go make movies that like wrestlers making movies was like an acceptable yeah. thing. And His he made it acceptable. Fascinating. Yeah. Like, I mean, he was a guy who was like living in an apartment with like three bucks in his pocket and that was it. And, you know, so I've always really respected that. Um, and then I think my other one is honestly, and it's, it probably seems like it would be for one reason, but it really is just, I've been such a huge fan of his for such a long time. Uh, but my other one is Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> and I just think like I you know I just I get it because of like who he is and how charismatic he is but like I was gonna say he is very charismatic yeah there's no denying that but like there's just something really genuinely fascinating like for me I can still remember everything about the first time watching Barry and how freaking <laughs> awesome he is in that movie and I don't think mm-hmm. people talk about that performance enough and I also even think like um, even that the Amityville remake. I was like, just about to say so that is the that. performance that I don't think people talk about enough is Ryan Reynolds in the Amityville remake. Oh no! I mean, like, yeah, there's like always the the, the memes of like him with like his his pajama pants and his abs and stuff. And sure, mm-hmm. that's great. But like, but honestly, no, I think he, the wood think... chopping scene for me is still one of the scariest scenes like out of two thousand horror. Really, the mm-hmm. cast of that. I mean, Melissa George is so good in that. He is so good in that. Chloe Glace. Chloe Grace Moritz in her first role, I believe. And they Fantastic. really put her on a roof. Yes, they really put her on that roof. I asked her about that. And <laughs> I, I remember was like, watching how the on thing earth and... would you were okay with that? Your parents were like, cool. I know. I'm just like, I understand how they did it. And I watched special features on it. But I know 
parents of child actors can be like, okay, I mean, whatever, but that but she really that wanted was... to do it. Like she's always <laughs> like she's always loved doing her own stunts. And I was like, I mean, oh she's a God. badass. We all know yeah. William Morris is a badass, but like she was like five. Yeah. <laughs> and that's really, that's but... another one that I think has kind of grown on me because I think what I saw originally in theaters, like I was kind of like, eh, or whatever. But it's I actually think the director's cut perfect, of it. But I'm very fine it, but I'm yeah. very fond of it. Yeah, I actually like it better than the original, which is probably blasphemy, but I don't really like the original all that much. I would agree with both of those sentiments. Okay, so we've all become best friends tonight, I think is what we yes. Yes. After yes. <laughs> um, yes. I will go ahead and throw in my dream people to talk to. And Sean obviously knows that my number one would be Timothy Chalamet. Yes. Two, would be Dakota okay. jo- two would be Dakota Johnson because I think she is fascinating. I did and, get to uh, talk to her. Oh, I'm so jealous. And for three, Suspiria, it was so overwhelming too. My third is going to be my like left out of left field pick, but Jennifer Coolidge. I would love to oh sit down gosh. and talk to Jennifer Coolidge over some drinks. You know, she 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 has some stories. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I like that she's like finally kind of coming into her own a little bit. Oh yeah, because the it's white- so overdue. Mm-hmm. Oh, it is you know. so overdue. The White Lotus was so good. Also, speaking of just, this is all over the place. I'm so sorry. No, don't, don't apologize. We were talking about, you know, 2022 being such a horror year. You know what I'm loving as a side effect of that? Kyle Gallner is finally yes. like getting his due and getting, and he's in like everything now. And I'm just like, yep. yes, let's put Kyle Galder in everything, he please. He totally needed his own storyline in Scream 5. And I know they cut it because I was so away. excited when they, when I was hearing the cast come, you know, for that and everything. And I'm like, ooh, Kyle Galder. I was not expecting him to have just, you know, that tiny little. So that makes sense that that was just cut away. But I was just like, why would you have Kyle Galder and not utilize him in this? Yeah, at least Smile takes advantage um, yes, I have like the best Kyle Galner story. Um, please, and... <laughs> please tell either now or later. Because... No, I can totally tell now. So I was doing the set visit for the Nightmare remake years and mm-hmm. years ago, um, which honestly for me was just an excuse to get to go back to Chicago um, mm-hmm. because I was already living here, and so it was pretty cool. And so we were we were sitting there and they were setting up for a scene or whatever. And around this time, there was like sort of this indie artist that was really popular with like indie rock people. And his name was Dan Deacon. And um, he did like the score for, he did the music for Twixt, which was that really uh, experimental movie that Francis Ford Coppola did with Val Kilmer. Mm-hmm. And yes, so, did not I, see it, but I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, and I loved Dan Deacon. And in fact, like um, 2008 Coachella, I actually went, that was like my first like real like music festival. And I went to Coachella and the first act I saw was Dan Deacon. And it was like, he came out into the crowd and everybody was doing like this fun little like thing where like people put their arms up and people will go under it. And I was in there by myself because all my friends were at different stages and I was just dancing with everybody and having a great time. And he had this like thing where it was like drinking out of cups. And it was like this whole, like, um, it's it's like this song but it's like if you find it it's it's there's a video of it on on youtube but it's like this music video with like this lizard talking and and it's just really like insanely quotable and i'd never really heard people say like talk like about it other than like my group of friends who are like into indie rock and so i'm sitting there like on the, the set of like 
the Nightmare remake. And all of a sudden I hear Kyle Gallner start quoting drinking out of cups. And I was like, oh my God. And I just looked, I turned around and I'm like, oh my God, do you love Dan Deacon? And he's like, I do. And I was like, oh my God. And then we got, and then we got shushed because they're like trying to be quiet on set. And I was just like, oh my God, he's like the coolest guy ever. And then we actually got to be a little bit friendly because I'd interviewed him a few times for different things. And like, so that was like, I was just like, in that moment, I was like, Kyle Gallner is like the coolest motherfucker out there. <laughs> I was like, there. there it and, is. <laughs> and it's true. And it really is. Like, he's, he's amazing. And I'm so glad, like, I really hope that, like, people can continue to discover Dinner in America. Because I know it's not a movie for everybody. And I've seen a few people. I have been like, wanting to watch it because I, I will watch him in pretty much anything. Because I have had a crush on him since I was younger. And I also think he is a fascinating actor. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very that. abrasive movie, but it's it's really, like, stick through the first 20 minutes. I the like first... weird yeah. stuff, so if it's, I'll I'll like it, I'm sure. Yeah. But just, there's been so much, think. there's been so much coming out, I just, am like, okay, I'm putting it in my list, I'll get to it. But I'm glad to know that it is not just a cookie cutter thing, because he picks interesting projects. Oh, totally, uh, yeah, and it's it's on Hulu, so it's it's out yeah. there. So, yeah, I highly recommend it. But I've so. just been very happy. Like, because all the marketing for Smile and stuff wasn't really that he was in it. But not I was at just all. Like, and I was really bummed about that. I don't know why they didn't use that. Because I'm like, I feel like he has a pull. Like, he's been steadily working for a long time. He but, is kind of like a horror so, scream king, basically. Yeah. And. So I was planning on seeing it anyway because I was like, this is either going to be ridiculous or awesome and I don't really care either way. Both ways will be fun. And then I heard that Kyle Gallner was like in it, in it. And I was just like, one, why are they not using that in marketing? And two, like, oh, hell yes, I'll definitely be there. This movie just got (laughs) infinitely more uh, exciting for me. And then he did wonderfully. Yeah. And I think he just announced there's a new movie that just got announced today from Dark Sky. Yeah, uh, something just got picked it. up, and he just yeah. finished filming something in Oregon or Idaho. Like he is working right now. I think we're in the middle of the Gall Renaissance. Is that how, it, is how that works? Yeah, so, something I'm like that. And Justin Long and <laughs> yeah, it's pre- it's pretty awesome. What a time to be a horror fan, really though. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Um. Doo, 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 doo. Did you have anything else you wanted to ask her about the book, Sean? No, I'm. I I got all my questions, and that last one, I'm still feeling a little bad for. I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't feel bad at all. It's hard. It's hard to stop me. So I'm honored that you were able to stop me. So trust Crushed me. It. <laughs> uh, yeah, this was clearly a passion project for you, and as a reader. Thank you, because those really come through rather than somebody just kind of doing something to do it. Like, you had a reason for this. It was interesting. I literally couldn't put it down, and I can never read anything anymore. Oh, well, thank you so much. That in itself, and I love that we'll be getting two more volumes. (laughs) Thank Uh, you. I'm so excited to go back and read the first one. Sean's already got it. I need to get on Amazon. Um, (laughs) What about you? Do you have anything you want to plug I mean, the book, of course, we need to know where to get it and when it's available. And, you know, you just had those two articles in Fangoria. Yeah, um, I think for me right now, it's it's pretty much the book. Because like I said, I'm sort of on sabbatical right now. Because mm-hmm. uh, I'm actually working on a different book project. 
um, that will hopefully be announced in like February or March, completely separate from the Monsters Makeup and Effects series. Um, so I'm kind of working pretty hard on that. I have a feeling you guys will probably be interested in that. Um, and that's the only tease I'll give. <laughs> uh. um, and so so it's, I don't have a ton to like promote on like the Daily Dead journalism-y type side. Um, but yeah, Monsters Makeup and Effects uh, will be out on the 26th. Um, I actually think if you pre if you've ordered from the publisher directly, I think they actually started shipping them today. Um, oh, cool. Because I saw somebody on Twitter mention how they they got, they got their shipping notification, which is pretty exciting. Um, and of course, it's also available on Amazon, I believe, on Barnes and Noble as well. Um, and I have to say, also too, when the first one came out, it actually ended up on like Target and Walmart's websites, which for some reason that really was just like oh whoa for me because I was like, you know, I was like. Amazon takes everything, Barnes and Noble, it makes sense, it's books, but I was like, wait, I'm on Target's website? What is that? The weird little things that will like give you validation. Yeah, I was like, I didn't know that that would end up meaning something to me. So I was like, oh, okay, interesting. Like I looked it up on the Target app and there it was. And I was like, oh, all right, cool. Like I just I, talked I, to Amy Lee Curtis, but my book's on Target. Yeah, I don't know how to, I don't know how to explain it. I need, uh, I need I, that bullseye validation, I guess. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. I felt the same way when I saw our podcast first pop up on like Spotify. I was like, oh my God, we're on Spotify. That's <laughs> it's so like, funny, though. It's like anybody can do a podcast shot. Anyone. Yeah. But... Well, it's, but it's different when it's like, I know, I, when it it's was popping exciting. up next to my favorite podcast. And I'm just like, oh, look at that. That's our podcast. Like, I can play it. You have to celebrate every victory for real. Exactly. Yes. No matter how big or small. They Life is short. Yeah. Um, where can people find you on your so on the socials? Where you um, also have the best profile picture ever, in my personal opinion. Thank you. Madeline Kahn is a goddess. Um, yeah, yes, I actually pretty much... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. It is Madeline Kahn doing her iconic flame speech from Clue, which... I did think about seeing if you had an on-the-spot impression, but I decided to go against that. But I could never you... live up to that moment. <laughs> Just, I can't. People, if you know, you know. It yeah. is iconic. Best moment of cinema. Yeah, it really is. Uh, in fact, it was funny because, like, growing up, it was one of my favorite movies. But, like, none of my friends really watched it. Nobody really knew, like, what Clue is. I think Clue has really kind of caught on over, like, the last 10 to 15 years. But um, when... I met my other half. We were at this party talking and stuff and we were just talking about movies or whatever. And I mentioned clue and he was like, wait, you love clue. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, I love clue. He's like, I didn't know anybody else loved clue. And I was like, I do. Like I had three movies that I used to torture people with watching all the time. And clue <laughs> was one of them. And he was just like, Oh my gosh. And we were lucky. Like years ago, they used to do like the shadow cast uh, version of clue with like the arrow theater in santa monica mm -hmm. so we got to go to that one year and like everybody was like dressed up and it was amazing um but yeah so clue is like a, a really big movie in the, in our household so um as but it yeah, should be uh, it should be in every household and i think it's getting there i mean i really every day like i see at least somebody like I, there isn't a week that goes by where i don't see there's some mention of clue on twitter in some way shape or form which is kind <laughs> of amazing I like they just had a big they like gallery 88 here in Los Angeles just had a clue specific art show oh, I missed wow. every piece which I'm so bummed about but it was like this like sort of like 
uh, noir novella themed where like everything looked like a pulp magazine cover. So, but we actually have like, we have, we have a whole wall of clue art in our house. Um, So we love it. But um, yeah, so I actually, on social media, I only hang out on Twitter. Um, So you can find me there at the horror chick, but I gave up on Facebook like almost 10 years ago now and I don't regret it. And I'm not, I'm just not cool enough to be on Instagram. I'm like, I have a profile on Instagram. I always, <laughs> I always claim my name on all these things, but I know, you know, Twitter's kind of just where I hang yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. Twitter is pretty much the fun hangout spot everywhere else. Like as you'll hear in a moment, like we have them, but Twitter, Twitter is the fun one. <laughs> it's just where people have like conversations and stuff. Yeah. Like that's what so, I want. I heard somewhere and I think this is really true. Twitter is where you find a bunch of strangers that you love deeply. And Facebook is where you learn to hate everyone you know. <laughs> exactly. That is that is the perfect description of both of those platforms. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that is perfect. Speaking of socials. <laughs> um, well, she find... didn't get it. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Oh, you did? Okay. I, oh, did I, I, I think I said at the horror chick. I think yeah. I did. Oh, okay. I the did horror that. chick. I couldn't remember if I heard it or not. I'm sorry. I'm yes. sorry. It's all good. I just want to make sure. <laughs> I was like, wait, did we forget? We got to talking. <laughs> it is definitely there. Um, you can find us together on Twitter at triple M pod with three M's. I personally am at just happy to see you. Number two, letter C, letter U. Sean, you are at Smurf013, S-M-U-R-P-H-013. We are also on Letterboxd. I am, again, at just happy to see you. Number two, letter C, letter U. And Sean is at Murph the Smurf, M-U-R-P-H-T-H-E-S-M-U-R-P-H. We are on Instagram at triple M pod, again, with three M's in there. We have a Facebook page, Men Who Like Men Who Like Movies. If you want to email us, our email is men who like men who like movies pod at gmail.com. Please give us a five star rate, maybe even a review if you have time. It seriously helps so much. Also, seriously, go buy this book. You will not regret it. It is that cool. Seriously. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about this. It was such a blast. This book is phenomenal. It was such a treat getting to talk to you about it. Well, thank and... you guys so much. And thank you for the great questions. And I'm happy to have been stumped. I've yet to be stumped <laughs> for the first time. I feel a little bit proud, but a little bit sad at the same time. Because I'm like, oh, I, I didn't mean I to stump her, awesome. but I'm also no, a little no, bit no, glad. It's good. <laughs> like, think about how many times she has talked to people and she hasn't been stumped until now. I think that's impressive. I, I would agree. <laughs> and... It almost goes without being said, but I will say you're welcome back anytime to talk about whatever. I will keep you updated on our schedule list. Oh, absolutely. And I would love to come back. Believe me, Joe versus the Volcano, I will put it on there and we will do it and people will have to listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. I love it. And I'll have anyway, to see what you guys are talking about. <laughs> yes, it's you are missing out, Sean. And anyway, until our episode on Trick or Treat dropping yes. on Friday. Uh, bye. See you guys next time. Thanks again, Heather. Bye. Bye. Thank you. <laughs>